From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life explores the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Today we're going to look at a very difficult and important topic, religious maltreatment of children. My guest is Janet Heimlich. She's the author of Breaking Their Will, Shedding Light on Religious Child Maltreatment. She spoke with dozens of victims, perpetrators, and experts and reviewed a myriad of court cases and studies. She found many forms of child maltreatment in religious contexts, including biblically prescribed corporal punishment and beliefs about the necessity of breaking the wills of children, scaring kids into faith, and other types of emotional maltreatment such as spurning, isolating, and withholding love, pedophilic abuse by religious authorities, and the failure of religious organizations to support the victims and punish the perpetrators. Religious Child Maltreatment, How Religion Hurts Children Instead of Helping Them. Today's topic. Uh, welcome, Ms. Heimlich, to Religion for Life. Thank you for having me, John. It's great to be here. Uh, how did your book, Breaking Their Will, Shedding Light on Religious Maltreatment, come to be? I began looking into the topic, I think like many individuals do, who just you know come across a very disturbing headline and start looking into what happened to to this child or that child. I think the first case that really called my attention to it was a high-profile medical neglect case that took place in Wisconsin where an 11-year-old girl named Kara Newman was uh, denied insulin and instead um, when she was showing signs of going into uh, diabetic crisis. Um, Her family and others in the faith community simply prayed over her. And it was such a tragic case to me because like so many religious medical neglect cases, children suffer terribly and sometimes die from uh, very commonly treatable illnesses. And I think it just kind of went from there I started to look more into other cases of abuse and neglect where some kind of religious ideology was really um, strongly involved in influencing the perpetrators. So it wasn't necessarily from your background. Your background wasn't necessarily religious, was it? No. I talk about my background a little bit in the book, that I came from a, a Jewish family that was more culturally Jewish than anything. Um, I I think that my approaching this topic was mostly as a journalist and uh, also a fairly new mother. So what is religious about religious child maltreatment? How does religion impact child abuse and neglect? Well, uh, one freedom that we all enjoy in this country is the uh, ability to worship the way that we want to, and to believe uh, in an an ideology or faith that brings meaning to our lives. So I don't don't cast judgment about, you know, how people choose to believe or how they practice their faith. Um, But there are many cases where um, individuals 
as they uh, carry out their religious practices, are harming other people. And I think that anybody can come up with situations where adults are harmed. We talk about things like spiritual abuse in churches that are uh, run like cults and things like that. What hasn't really been brought to the service enough, in my view, is how uh, these kinds of religious environments harm children. Now, certainly the vast majority of people who are of faith uh, are not abusing and neglecting their kids. But because I think um, up until probably pretty recently, I think people had a, uh, a very benign view of faith as if nothing uh, uh, in, in the environment of religion, um, in, in religions that we're all familiar with, could be associated with something as terrible as child abuse. But I think we're beginning to learn that uh, having a, a faith in something, you know, it can it can go different ways. And sometimes it can be used to benefit others and to nurture and care for children. Other situations, it can go very much the opposite way. And religion, um, as I understand uh, your book, can also be used as, as a cover or, or as a protection, in a sense, for abusive practices that we wouldn't even accept in secular society. Well, certainly, legislatively, we've, we've seen that take place where uh, there will be child abuse and neglect laws in place, uh, but then there are exemptions that are made for people who are essentially perpetrating abuse and neglect, but because they're justifying that um, for religious reasons, they will not be prosecuted. So, for example, uh, back to the uh, Kara Newman case where she died from diabetes, uh, the, the parents were prosecuted, but they, they really got a, a slap on the wrist. And, and actually, that's less common. Um, many states including Wisconsin, have these exemptions where parents who uh, deny their children needed medical care and the child suffers or dies, uh, they, 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 don't, they will not be criminally prosecuted uh, in, in many cases due to the, these statutes that are in place. So we, we do see a, a cover in, in the sense that, um, you know, a lot goes on um, that, that a lot of people aren't aware of. Uh, when it comes to child sexual abuse, you know, we've learned a lot about how religious organizations are, are covering up such cases. You know, they're, mm -hmm. they're very concerned about the image of their organization. You have uh, members in faith communities who are very concerned about the image of their community. Uh, certainly, if a religious leader uh, has been accused of uh, sexually abusing a child, there, there are many that often will um, want to protect his or her image. Sometimes uh, these cases do get out and someone will go to trial and you'll see, you know, a whole congregation show up at the trial and they're there, uh, unfortunately, very often not for the victim, but in support of the perpetrator. 
Let's talk about uh, some of the ways uh, religious child maltreatment uh, manifests itself. Uh, your book, uh, Breaking Their Will, Shedding Light on Religious Child Maltreatment, is divided into four sections, uh, religious child physical abuse, religious child emotional abuse, uh, religious child sexual abuse that you just talked about, and religious child medical neglect, uh, as you gave the example uh, from the child in Wisconsin. Well, a little bit more about each one of these. How does religion impact, uh, for example, child physical abuse? Well, um, it depends on what faith environment you're talking about. But speaking uh, about what goes on in the United States, the most common form of physical abuse that's enabled by religious belief um, come from Christian-based theology about children being sinful. Now, certainly not all Christians believe in the concept of original sin. Uh, Not all believe that babies are born sinful and that kind of thing. But Sadly, many do believe that. And as a result, um, uh, they will uh, uh, be uh, very concerned about the, the, the child's ability to uh, be saved. And they, they actually do feel like they're doing something good for the child spiritually by trying to rid them of that sin. And oftentimes that is done through corporal punishment and sometimes severely and abusively. Some children have even died from that kind of treatment. And I will say that we're not really talking about uh, what we typically think of as physical abuse, where someone might just lash out in anger. Uh, A lot of the uh, beliefs that surround the idea of using physical punishment on children for religious reasons, it's often done in a rather detached and systematized way, sometimes over a very long period of time. And um, a lot of uh, individuals who promote this kind of idea will draw from certain passages in the Bible, usually in Proverbs, where um, these passages talk about using uh, what's referred to as the rod on children as a way to uh, bring them e- eternal salvation um, and uh, prevent them from from being eternally damned. And so, the kind of the ideology behind that is that the, the body itself must be punished um, in order for the, the spirit to grow. Well, I don't know. If, you know, there's there's a lot of um, thought that goes into it that really makes a lot of sense. I, I think a lot of times it's it's simply drawing from scripture mm-hmm. and wanting to apply maybe one or two particular passages. And, you know, we can certainly see that if someone has a mental illness, if they do have anger management problems, if they are kind of a power hungry type individuals, uh, or they have a child that has behavioral problems, psychological problems that makes the child difficult to control. These kinds of religious ideas can serve to justify uh, an adult's uh, need to 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 control a child, and sometimes in a very unhealthy way. And churches themselves uh, can promote this type of of behavior of the uh, spare the rod, spoil the child type of idea. How to discipline your children in a biblical way? So it isn't just parents. It's they they uh, you talk about the parents as kind of in the middle of of organizations mm-hmm. that have an ideology about this. That's right. And I will first uh, make sure that people are aware that the term spare the rod, spoil the child does not appear in the Bible. It comes from a poem that was written hundreds of years later. But uh, mm. the word, the, but that poem did take from 
the Bible, the the term the rod. So, um, you know that that is where it originates. And and yes, you you know you you may have um, a particular household that engages in this, but very often you'll see entire churches uh, where you have someone of authority, the religious leader, who is promoting these kinds of ideas. Uh, you know, as much as many parents might complain about, say, government, you know, getting into their personal lives. All too often, uh, very religious people will will find it to be acceptable that uh, a pastor or a rabbi or an imam can tell them how to raise their kids. And so what you have is uh, sometimes just almost a whole church full of people who are following these kinds of edicts and thinking that, you know, they're doing the right thing, they're being obedient and that kind of thing by, by beating their kids. Um, I have interviewed parents who, once they got out of those environments, expressed great regret that they they did what they did, whether it was um, indoctrinating their children with fear-based messages, whether it was um, excessive spanking, uh, or or what have you. Um, What's important to understand here is that very often parents are, in fact, victims of the same system. And uh, I often talk about these problems occurring most often in religious authoritarian cultures. So if you have a church, a faith community of some kind, a place of worship where the governance of that community, of that organization is very top down and you have very powerful leaders, you, the men are much more powerful than the women, etc. That's when you're going to see the worst problems. Parents need to have autonomy in making decisions how they raise their kids. And for whatever reason, if they're abiding by harmful child rearing um, sermons that, you know, tell them to uh, deny medical care, that tell them to beat their children, etc., you're going to have some serious problems. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Janet Heimlich. She's the author of Breaking Their Will, Shedding Light on Religious Child Maltreatment. And in regards to uh, religious child emotional abuse, um, I'll set up this question this way. Uh, In one of our local newspapers, the Johnson City Press, a reporter recently visited a judgment house, and his report raised a a great deal of conversation online uh, in the comment section of the article. Uh, Every Saturday evening in October, this church uh, does a drama in which groups are led through this house of judgment, and they're told the story in dramatic visual form of the hell that awaits those who don't accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior in heaven for those who do. Uh, these kinds of houses are all over the country. W- would you call these judgment houses or hell houses, as they're sometimes called, a, a form of religious child emotional abuse? Well, I certainly see it as a sign that a faith community is using terror as a way to control the congregants. Um, in terms of whether individuals are are abused, well, a fo- one form of emotional abuse is terrorizing, uh, also spurning. And so if, for example, a child is being led through one of these things and is um, you know, forced to look at very, very violent, bloody scenes, uh, you may have a, a child who is gay and they go in there and they may say, you know, these horrifically violent acts being done to um, a teenager in the, in the exhibit who is, uh, 
who is believed to be homosexual. And so you can see how that can fold itself into, you know, a whole culture where a child feels less than or feels terrified, um, does not feel nurtured and welcomed. So I, you know, I can't say that, that a particular incident in a hell house would lead to, to abuse, but it certainly uh, is part of a system where people are um, expected to act a certain way, think a certain way, and be, be like uh, others in the community, or else there is, in their, their words, hell to pay. And that's a, that's a really healthy, unhealthy thing for families to engage in, for children to be forced to undergo, and for whole communities. You know, a religious leader might, might say that, well, we believe in the uh, reality of hell and what children experience on earth is small to what eternity holds. A little fear of God up front uh, can prevent eternal torment at the end. How do you balance our uh, freedom of religious belief and practice with concern of the welfare for children? Where, where's that line? Whereas a society, we need to say religious freedom cannot be uh, uh, protection for this treatment of children. Well, I... I certainly think that any adult uh, who has ideas about living in fear as being righteous, um, who who feels that it's necessary for him or her to believe in these fear-based ideas in order to uh, treat others well, if they are you know very worried about their own eternal salvation, they should do what they need to do to make themselves feel better about that. However, uh, there are laws in this country about how we treat vulnerable children. And, of course, uh, many religious texts talk about the need to protect the vulnerable. Uh, if there's all, There are all kinds of justifications that religious leaders have for harming kids. Um, and uh, so, you know, they'll probably come out with, you know, all, all kinds of uh, – usually convoluted, 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 excuse me, reasons as to why what they're doing is actually good for the child. But I think you'll find that almost always it's serving a different purpose. Uh, it's serving the purpose for, for that individual to uh, enjoy a very powerful position. And that, that goes down through the hierarchy of these cultures. I think the important thing is that um, those of us who are not quite so ignorant about um, good child development practices that we encourage places of worship when they're designing their children's programs, for example, to allow child development experts, child psychologists to be involved with that process. Because if you have a place of worship that wants to do it all themselves and they're doing it all based on their you know, legalistic doctrines and things like that, then you have a community that's living in a vacuum. They may be in an urban environment. They don't have to be off in some compound somewhere. But they, they are uh, practicing in, in shunning. They're practicing in um, den denying people you know, education very often. And so you have uh, this lack of, of intellectual autonomy that, that people deserve to have. So I think that we on the outside should be should try to recognize that and maybe somehow encourage individuals in those communities to to just be a little bit better educated and maybe be exposed to what we now understand about good child development practices how how prevalent is religious child maltreatment in the united states 
Well, I wish there was a study that looked at that specifically. Um, there have been a few that, that have been really interesting. Um, however, it's, 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 it's something that uh, I don't think has been properly studied because people haven't really known how to recognize it. Uh, we, we, you know, I, I do talk about studies in my book, but I think that we really have to understand first what leads to these problems. If you have an environment that's very tolerant, where the leaders uh, are, are there as guides and not so much as there to control the congregants, and you know you have a, a, a more of a compassionate uh, community. Um, at my nonprofit, we, we offer a designation program for places of worship to be child-friendly faith communities. And so if you have a child-friendly faith community, you're not going to see these kinds of uh, these kinds of issues, but where you do have religious authoritarianism, uh, that's that's when we we really need to I think reach out and and just try to get some education in there for the individuals. As far as how how frequent it is, I think I think we we all just need to kind of think about who who do we know mm-hmm. who is either. Uh, raising their child in an authoritarian faith community who came from one. Um, you know, when I first started looking into this, I, I just started getting into conversations with people I knew. And I, I found that I, their, their upbringings were, were in, in uh, you know, very oppressive faith communities. I never would have even known had I not asked about that. So I, I think we can just sort of get a sense that we're not talking the majority of the faithful here. We're, we're talking about uh, these more, I want to say, extremist or fringy, uh, very authoritarian religious organizations and places of worship where there is a very strict hierarchy in the culture, where people are unusually fearful, and where there is social isolation. Janet Heimlich, author of Breaking Their Will, Shedding Light on Religious Child Maltreatment. She's also the president of the Child Friendly Faith Project. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this project? Uh, maybe just start by answering, uh, what's the difference between a child-friendly faith and, and the one that mistreats children? Well, um, in setting up our designation program for places of worship to sign up to be a child-friendly faith community, one of the things that we have is what we call the Charter for Child-Friendly Faith. And uh, I encourage anyone to come to our website, childfriendlyfaith.org, and take a look at the charter. And that right there tells you a lot about our principles, our views of children, and essentially it really comes down to recognizing that children are important members of society. Uh, they're not tools for us to use or to own. Uh, they, they, we don't need to wait for them to be 18 before they become important. They're important now. Mm-hmm. And uh, secondly, we're, we're going to be offering workshops um, and trainings for uh religious leaders and staff of places of worship. But a lot of those trainings are available now. And and so a child-friendly faith community would be one where they are um, taking it upon themselves to learn about not just child prevention, child abuse prevention, but also how do they respond when a case of suspected child abuse rises to the surface. Um, a lot of times, Faith communities don't quite know what to do in those situations. Uh, they may not be familiar with the law regarding 
uh, mandatory reporting. And so there's there's really an education that has to be uh, a, a part of being a child-friendly faith community, um, learning about what the law is and how to best respond so that we are making sure that we're not forgetting about victims when cases like these come up. And that website is childfriendlyfaith.org. And you just had a, uh, a conference in November. Uh, what, are some, what are some things that the project is, is doing specifically? Yeah, this conference was quite amazing, especially for professionals who came, social workers, law enforcement attorneys, and others, where, you know, they I probably probably think that they... They, they've seen it all, you know, they've seen so many, you know, they live day in and day out dealing with child abuse. And, and, and yet here we were showing all kinds of forms of child maltreatment that, that a lot of people were surprised, surprised to learn about. Um, in fact, that very day, we, we had someone who's a child advocate um, get up and talk about some news reports that came out the night before where a faith community was discovered to have uh, nearly a dozen dead children found in, in the cemetery that were mm-hmm. recent deaths. And, uh, you know, I, I do think that people were pretty blown away by that. Uh, so we had experts in child advocacy, in the law, and in other areas talking about what can we do to make faith child-friendly. You dedicate your book to children who've been denied the right to question. Uh, that seems to be, in a sense, a root of the issue, isn't it? I feel it is. I feel that if a child is growing up in a community where their intellectual autonomy is respected, where they are not just permitted to to express their own thoughts and feelings, but they're encouraged to do so and they're listened to, then you know you're in an environment where they're not just trying to control kids. They're, they're actually looking to, to nurture them. And Nelson Mandela said that, you know, we can almost judge a society by how it treats its children. And you can see that in a child-friendly faith community, you know, really the whole community benefits. And I thought I'd just relay one anecdote that just always sticks with me. I was interviewing a woman who grew up in a conservative Amish community. And, and she said this, that this is quite common that, that, Kids were, were just expected to be quiet and, and behave, and uh, there was severe corporal punishment if that was not the case and so forth. Um, and, and she even said that uh, they were not encouraged to express their opinions. And, and I said to her, well, what would have happened if you did express your opinion? And she said, I don't think I ever had an opinion. Hmm. And, and you see that that actually you know, carries out the, the, the purpose of an authoritarian community. They, they would rather not have you know, the individual be, be respected because, because then they can't carry out sort of the overall agenda of what's going on. And um, unfortunately, you see many communities that they look at children as you know, being very valuable, but, but not for the individuals that they are but for the way that they can indoctrinate them and have them stay in the fold. And then that just sort of, you know, preserves the, the community for the future. 
My guest uh, has been Janet Heimlich. She's the author of Breaking Their Will, Shedding Light on Religious Child Maltreatment, and the president of Child Friendly Faith Project. That website, again, is childfriendlyfaith.org. Janet, thank you so much for your work, for your advocacy, uh, and, and for this uh, and for this work and for being with me today on Religion for Life. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on, John. You've been listening to Religion for Life at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. More information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts, information about upcoming shows, and more can be found at religionforlife.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.